San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio presents Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and dramatized from stories by Dashiell Hammett. This time, a sweet-natured poet gets more than he bargains for when he falls for a beautiful girl. Theft, hiding from the law, and murder. Tonight's story: The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part One, adapted for audio by Pete Lutz. Yes? Sorry to disturb your day of rest, but you'll have to go up to the Clinton Apartments on Leavenworth Street. Uh, A man named Burke Pangburn, who lives there, phoned me a few minutes ago asking to have someone sent up to see him at once. He seemed rather excited. Uh, Will you take care of it, see what he wants? Yes, I'll head over now. Thank you. Oh, damn you, Burke Pangburn. Whoever the hell you are. The man who had disturbed my Sunday morning sleep, I found when I reached the Glenton apartments, was a slim, white-faced person of about 25. His eyes were red, either from sleeplessness or crying or both. His long brown hair was rumpled when he opened the door to admit me, and he wore a mauve dressing robe spotted with big jade parrots over wine-colored silk pajamas. Are you the detective I sent for? Come in, please. I followed him in through a room that might have been an auctioneer's just before the day of the big sale. It was festooned with dozens of vases, candlesticks, unusual paintings, lanterns, lamps, statuettes of ebony, marble, and other material, and odds and ends of furniture that was all somehow weirdly designed. In short, a hard room for a man to feel comfortable in. My fiancé has disappeared. Something has happened to her. Foul play of some horrible sort. I I want you to find her, to save her from this terrible thing that... I followed him this far and then gave it up. A jumble of words came out of his mouth. Spirited away, mysterious something, lured into a trap. But they were too disconnected for me to make anything out of them. So I stopped trying to understand him and waited for him to babble himself empty of words. Presently, he ran out of language and was holding his thin hands out to me in an appealing gesture, saying, Will you? Will you? Will you? Uh Uh-huh. Suppose we begin at the beginning. Yes, yes, the beginning. I had a letter from her every day until... That's not the beginning. Who is she? What is she? She's Jean Delano, and she's my fiancé, and now she's gone, and I know that... The phrase is... Foul play! Into a trap! And so on, began to flow hysterically out again. Finally, I got him quieted down and, sandwiched between occasional outbursts, got a story out of him that amounted to this.
This Burke Pangburn was a poet. About two months before, he'd received a note from Eugene Delano, forwarded from his publishers, praising his latest book of rhymes. He'd answered her note, which began a correspondence between them. After a little of this, they met. If she really was as beautiful as he claimed, then he wasn't to be blamed for falling in love with her. But whether or not she was really beautiful, he thought she was, and he'd fallen hard. Jean had been living in San Francisco for only a little while, and when we met for the first time, she was living alone in an apartment on Ashbury Avenue. No, I don't know where she came from, nor anything about her earlier life. I got the feeling somehow that there was a cloud of some sort hanging over her, that neither her past nor her present were free from difficulties. But I didn't have the least idea of what those difficulties might be. And to be honest, I didn't care. I knew only that she was beautiful, and I loved her, and she'd promised to marry me. <sighs> then on the third of the month, exactly 21 days before this day, this very Sunday morning, the girl had suddenly left San Francisco. He'd received a note from her, delivered via messenger. This note, which he showed me after I had insisted point-blank upon seeing it, read, Burke, love, have just received a wire and must go east on the next train. I tried to get you on the phone, but couldn't. We'll write you as soon as I know what my address will be. Oh, if anything... These two words were erased and could be read only with great difficulty. Love me until I'm back with you forever. Your Jean. Nine days later, he'd received another letter from her, postmarked Baltimore. This one, which I had a still harder time getting a look at, read... Dearest poet, oh, it seems like two years since I've seen you. And I have a fear that it's going to be between one and two months before I see you again. I can't tell you now, beloved, about what brought me here. Well, there are things that can't be written. But as soon as I'm back with you, I shall tell you the whole wretched story. Anything should happen? I mean, to me. You'll go on loving me forever, won't you? Oh, but that's foolish. Nothing is going to happen. I'm just off the train and tired from traveling. Tomorrow I shall write you a long, long letter to make up for this. My address here is 215 North Stricker Street. Please, mister, at least one letter a day. Your own Jean. For nine days, I had a letter from her each day, with two on Monday to make up for the nun on Sunday, and the daily letters I'd been sending to 215 North Stricker Street, Baltimore, began to come back to me, marked not known. I sent a telegram, and Western Union informed me that their Baltimore office had been unable to find Eugene Delano at the North Stricker Street address. For three days, I waited, expecting to hear from her every hour, but no word came, and I decided to buy a ticket to Baltimore. But as it turned out, he was afraid to go. I know she's in some kind of trouble. I can feel it, but I'm a silly poet. I can't deal with mysteries. I can't go blundering in with, without knowing whether I'm helping or harming her. It's a task for an expert in that sort of thing. So I thought of your agency. You'll be careful, won't you? Maybe you can help her without her knowing about it. You're accustomed to that sort of thing, aren't you? The two great bugaboos of a reputable detective agency are the persons who bring in a crooked plan or a piece of divorce work, all dressed up in the garb of a legitimate operation, and the irresponsible person who is laboring under wild and fanciful delusions, who wants a dream run out. So I turned the job over and over in my mind before answering him. This poet seemed sincere, but I wasn't so sure of his sanity. Mr. Pangburn, 
I'd like to handle this thing for you, but I'm not sure that I can. The Federated is rather strict, and while I believe this thing is on the level, still, I'm only a hired man and have to go by the rules. Now, if you could give us the endorsement of some firm or person of standing, a reputable lawyer, for instance, or any legally responsible party, we'd be glad to go ahead with the work. Otherwise, I'm afraid... But I know she's in danger, and I can't be airing her affairs to everyone. I'm sorry, but I can't touch it unless you can give me some such endorsement. But you can find plenty of detective agencies that aren't so particular. His mouth worked like a small boy's, and he caught his lower lip between his teeth. For a moment, I thought he was going to burst into tears. But instead, he said slowly, I dare say you're right. Suppose I refer you to my brother-in-law, Roy Axford. Will his word be sufficient? Yes. If you can get me in touch with him now and arrange for me to see him today, I can get started without much delay. Pangburn crossed the room to the phone. Roy Axford, more commonly known as R.F. Axford, was a mining man who had a finger in at least half of the big business enterprises of the Pacific Coast and his word on anything was commonly considered good enough for anybody. Hello, Rita. It's your brother. Y yes, fine. Yes. Uh, Rita, is Roy home? Will he be home this afternoon? No? Uh, you can give him a message for me, though. Tell him I'm sending a gentleman up to see him on a personal matter. Uh, personal with me. And that I'll be grateful if he'll do what I want. Yes. No, it's not a thing to talk about over the phone. Yes, thanks. He'll be home until two o'clock. You'll have to tell him everything, I'm afraid. He doesn't know anything at all about Miss Delano. All right. Before I go, I want a description of her. She's beautiful. The most beautiful woman in the world. <sighs> that isn't exactly what I want. How old is she? 22. Height? Uh, about five feet eight inches, or possibly nine. there followed a question-and-answer session that lasted several minutes as I tried to get Pangburn to describe the woman without using purple prose. That would look nice on a reward circular, wouldn't it? But in the end, I was able to determine that, in addition to her age and height, that she was slender, with long, dark brown hair, a fair complexion, an oval face with a small, regular nose, and eyes that were... You've seen shadows on polished silver when... Gray, and that she dressed quietly in dark blues and browns. He'd never seen her wear any jewelry, and when I asked about scars or moles, his horrified expression urged me on to say, or warts or deformities that you know of. <laughs> he was speechless after that, but managed to shake his head. I then asked if he had any photographs of her, and he produced a large one in a carved ivory frame. It was too artistic to be of much use, but after much wrangling, I persuaded him to let me take it, plus a couple of her letters, so I could have a handwriting specialist analyze it. Once I had these safely tucked away in a pocket, I asked, Does she have much money? I don't know. It's not the sort of thing that one would pry into. She had an account of the Golden Gate Trust Company. I'd, naturally, I don't know anything about its size. Does she have many friends here? Well, that's another thing I don't know. When we were together, we were only interested in ourselves. We were simply... Can't you even make a guess at where she came from, who she was? No. Those things didn't matter to me. She was Jean Delano, and that was enough for me. The next question I put to him caused him to jump to his feet and his face to go fog gray. Did you and she ever have any financial interests in common? I mean, was there ever any transaction and money or other valuables in which both of you were interested? What I meant, of course, was had she got into him for a loan or had she sold him something or got money out of him in any way? After a moment, he slumped down and blushed beet red. Pardon me, you didn't know her and of course you must look at the thing from all angles. 
but I'm afraid you'll be wasting your time if you take the view that she's an adventuress. There's nothing like that. She's a girl with something terrible hanging over her. Something that called her to Baltimore suddenly. Something that has taken her away from me. Money? <sighs> what could money have to do with it? I love her! Thanks for agreeing to meet with me, Mr. Axford. What's our Burke been up to now? This Axford was a big, full-blooded man with a manner of one whose self-confidence is complete and not altogether unjustified. Despite what his brother-in-law had advised me, I chose not to tell Axford all of the details. He was engaged to marry a girl named Jean Delano who went east about three weeks ago and suddenly disappeared. He knows very little about her, thinks something has happened to her, and wants her found. Again? <laughs> And to a gene this time. She's the fifth within a year, to my knowledge, and no doubt I missed one or two while I was in Hawaii. But where do I come in? He referred me to you when I asked him for responsible endorsement. I think he's all right, but he isn't, in the strictest sense, a responsible person. You're right about that. Oh, he's all right. It's just that he's spoiled. He's been in delicate health all his life, and... He has a modest income that allows him to buy doodads for his flat and put out books of verse. Hmm. Do you think something has really happened to the girl? Or is Burke imagining things? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a dream at first, but in a couple of her letters, there are hints that something is wrong. You might go ahead and find her then. I don't suppose any harm will come from letting him have his gene back eh? At least give him something to think about for a while. I'll go ahead with it, then. By the way, the girl has an account with the Golden Gate Trust Company, and I'd like to find out as much as possible about it, especially where her money came from. Clement, the cashier, is a model of caution when it comes to giving out information about depositors. If you could put in a word for me, it would make my way smoother. Be glad to. Here. Show this card to that fellow at the bank. I'll be on my way, then. I'll call on you if I need any further assistance. Hello, Mr. Pangburn. It's your man from the Federated. Your brother-in-law has given the job his approval. What's that? Oh, what am I going to do next? I'm going to send a wire to my agency's Baltimore branch, see if they can get a line on Miss Delano. I'll keep in touch. Don't worry. Thanks. Yeah. If you want a flat, we got no vacancies. Are you the manager, um, Mrs. Clute? Who wants to know? I'm from the Federated Detective Agency. Looking for any information on a former tenant, Miss Delano, Jean Delano? Yeah. She used to live here. I don't know anything about her, though. How long did she stay here? About, oh, two and a half months or so. Did she ever have any visitors that you know of? Every once in a while. There's one fella who used to come around quite a bit. I think she said he was a poet. You know why she left? Well, she told me she'd been called back east, but didn't say what for. When was this? Third of this month. I remember it because I had to tell her she owed for the full month since it was after the first. She asked me to hold her mail until she sent me her new address. And did she? Sure she did. About ten days later, she sent me a card with a Baltimore address on it. But funny thing is... There weren't no mail to forward. Did Miss Delano leave any of her belongings behind? 
At first she did. But in between her leaving and the day I got the card from her, some transfer men came and took her two trunks away. Oh? Do you remember the name of the transfer company? Not offhand. No. What color was their truck? Mm, green. Thank you, Mrs. Clute. My conversation with the formidable Mrs. Clute had not been a total waste of time. Green was the color used by one of the city's largest transfer companies. I went then to the office of this company and found a friendly clerk on duty. Gene Delano? Sure, Mac. Couple minutes. It's a wise detective who takes pains to make and keep as many friends as possible among transfer company, express company, and railroad employees. The clerk came back as promised with a slip of paper. Okay, I've written down the claim check numbers for Miss Delano's trunks. They were taken from here to the ferry building baggage room. Thanks, pal. Have a smoke. At the ferry building, armed with this information, it didn't take me many minutes to learn that the trunks had been checked to Baltimore. I sent another wire to the Baltimore branch, giving the railroad check numbers. Sunday was well into night by this time, so I knocked off and went home. Uh, good morning, sir. Nice to see you again. Please, come in. I'd like to thank you, Mr. Clement, for agreeing to meet with me before the bank opens for the day. Yes, well, uh, any friend of Mr. Axford's is a friend of ours, to be sure, sir. Now, what can I do for you? All of the traditional caution and conservatism of bankers rolled together wouldn't be one, two, three to the amount usually displayed by the plump, white-haired Clement. But one look at Axford's card with please give bearer all possible assistance inked across the back of it made the old fellow positively eager to help me. You have or have had an account here in the name of Jean Delano. I'd like to know as much as possible about it, to whom she drew checks and what amounts, but especially all you can tell me about where her money came from. Certainly. Bring me the account folder on Delano. A few moments later, the silent lad brought in a handful of papers and laid them on the cashier's desk. Miss Delano was introduced here by Mr. Bert Pangburn on the 6th of last month and opened an account with $850 in cash. She made the following cash deposits. Clement rattled off a number of deposits that had all been made the previous month, all of which were less than $500. But then he announced another number. $20,000 on the 2nd of this month. But this last one was a check, which I have here. 20000 Paid to the order of Jean Delano, $20,000, signed Burke Pangburn. <whistles> Burke Pangburn. Was it usual for him to draw checks to that amount? No, it appears that Mr. Pangburn deposited that same amount on the first of the month. Cash? No, a check. Drawn against Mr. Axford's account here. Now tell me about Miss Delano's withdrawals. Clement rattled off a handful of inconsequential withdrawals, including a canceled check for $85 to an H.K. Clute, which was no doubt her rent payment for that month. Then on the third of this month, she closed out her account with a check to her own order for $21,515. And that check? Was cashed here by her. I lighted a cigarette and let the figures tumble around in my head the only ones that were of any value to me were the ones fixed to Pangburn's and Axford's signatures. This is the way of it, Mr. Clement. On the first of the month, Pangburn deposited Mr. Axford's check for $20,000. The next day, he gave a check for that amount to Miss Delano, which she deposited. 
On the following day, she closed her account, taking a little less than $20,000 in currency. Exactly. Before going up to the Glenton apartments to brace Pangburn about why he'd not come clean with me about the 20,000 clams, I dropped in at the agency to see if any word had come from Baltimore. Yes, I've only just finished decoding one. Baggage arrival, Mount Royal Station on 8th. Taken away, same day. Unable to trace. 215 North Stricker Street is Baltimore Orphan Asylum. Girl not known there. Continuing our efforts to find her. Thanks, kid. Oh, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. I'm just coming back from lunch. Have you been looking for me? Not just now. I was catching up on some wires I sent off. That's fine. Uh, Did you see Pangburn? The old man, the branch manager for our local office, throws around phrases like, that's fine, is not much more than punctuation. The whole building could catch fire, and when somebody told him about it, he'd probably say, that's fine, in the exact same way. We continued our conversation in his office. I'm working on Pangborn's job now, but I think it's a bust. Uh, How do you mean? Pangburn is R.F. Axford's brother-in-law. He met a girl a couple of months ago and fell for her. She sizes up as a worker. He doesn't know anything about her. The first of the month, he got $20,000 from Axford and passed it over to the girl. She blew, telling him she'd been called to Baltimore and giving him a phony address that turns out to be an orphanage. She sent her trunks to Baltimore and sent him some letters from there. Yes, but it's possible that a friend could have taken care of the baggage and also could have remailed her letters to Pangburn. Right. Uh, Of course, she'd have needed a train ticket to check the trunks on, but in a $20,000 game, that'd be a small expense. Hmm. What else? The man held out on me. Pangburn didn't tell me a word about the money. Ashamed of being easy pickings, I reckon. I'm on my way to go to bat with him on it now. The old man smiled his mild smile that might mean anything, and I left. Going down, mister? Might as well. I spent ten minutes ringing a doorbell and got no answer. Mr. Pangburns? Yeah. Are you a detective, too? Pshaw, mister. I just keep my eyes and ears open. Anyway, if you're looking for Mr. Pangburn, I think he ain't been in all night. Thanks, pal. Get yourself a smoke. I put a note in Pangburn's box at the front desk, asking him to call me when he got in. Then I spent the rest of the afternoon running out leads and not getting much of anywhere. From home, I spent the evening trying to reach Pangburn by phone with no success. At 11 o'clock, I called up Axford and asked him if he had any idea where I might find his brother-in-law. He was supposed to come up for dinner last night, but didn't show. My wife tried to reach him by phone a couple of times today. When I broke the news to him about the $20,000, he said, Perhaps we'd better take a run over to the Golden Gate Trust Company. Ten minutes later, we were in Clement's office. Yes, sir, Mr. Axford. My clerk has just brought in your canceled checks. Here you are, sir. There was a thick wad of them, and Axford ran rapidly through the checks until he found the one he wanted. He studied that one for a long while, and when he looked up at me, he shook his head slowly, but with Mm, finality. I've never seen it before. Oh, my. Oh, oh my. It's endorsed on the back by Burke. For deposit on the first, 
Could we talk to the teller who took in the $20,000 check that Miss Delano deposited? Oh, um, oh, yes, certainly. One moment, please. Yes. Oh, my. Oh, my. This is Mr. Evans. Evans, please tell these gentlemen what they wish to know. Do you remember taking a check for $20,000 from Miss Jean Delano a few weeks ago? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Perfectly. Just what do you remember about it? Well, sir, Miss Delano came to my window with Mr. Burke Pangburn. It was his check. I thought it was a large check for him to be drawing, but the bookkeeper said he had enough money in his account to cover it. They stood there, Miss Delano and Mr. Pangburn, talking and laughing while I entered the deposit in her book. And then they left, and that was all. Axford waited until Evans, the teller, had left the office before he spoke. This check is a forgery, but I shall make it good, of course. That ends the matter, Mr. Clement, and there must be no more to do about it. Certainly, Mr. Axford, certainly. Clement was all enormously relieved smiles and head noddings with this $20,000 load lifted from his bank's shoulders. A few moments later, we were seated in Axford's coupe, but he didn't immediately start the engine. He sat for a while, staring at the traffic of Montgomery Street with unseeing eyes. I want you to find Burke. I want you to find him without risking the least whisper of a scandal. If my wife knew of all this, she mustn't know. The girl doesn't matter anymore, but I suppose while you find one, you'll find the other. I'm not interested in recovering the money. And not that you could by this time. It's Burke I want you to find before he does something else. We went up to Pangburn's apartment then, easily securing admittance on Axford's explanation that we had an engagement with him and would wait there for him. I went through the rooms inch by inch, prying into each hole and hollow and crack, reading everything that was written anywhere, even down to his manuscripts, and I found nothing that threw any light on his disappearance. I pocketed five photographs of Pangburn that weren't too artistic in hopes of getting copies made. I did not find his Golden Gate Trust Company deposit book. The following morning, I came into the agency to find a note on my desk asking me to call up Axford. Can you come up to my office now? There was a lad of 21 or two with Axford when I was ushered into his office, a narrow-chested, dandified lad of the sporting club type. This is Mr. Fall, one of my employees. He says he saw Burke with a woman Sunday night. Where? Going into a roadhouse near Half Moon Bay. Sure it was him? Absolutely. I've seen him come in here to Mr. Axford's office a few times. It was him, all right. What roadhouse was this? The White Shack. About what time? Somewhere between 11.30 and midnight, I guess. He see you? No, I was already in our car when he drove up. I don't think he'd know me anyway. What did the woman look like? I don't know. I didn't see her face. Anything else you can tell me? That's it, I guess. We shoot him out of the office, and I used Axford's telephone to call up Wapo Healy's dive in North Beach and leave word that when Porky Grout came in, he was to call up Jack. This was the established code that let Porky know I wanted to see him without giving anybody a chance to tumble to the connection between us. I hung up and asked Axford, know the white shack? I've never seen it before. Well, it's a tough hole, run by Tin Star Joplin, an ex-yeg who invested his winnings in the place when Prohibition made the Roadhouse game good. He makes more money now than he ever heard of in his safe-ripping days. 
His real profit comes from acting as a relay station for the booze that comes from Half Moon Bay for points beyond. Anyway, it's no place for your brother-in-law to be hanging around. I can't go down there myself without stirring things up. Joplin and I are old friends, but I've got a man I can put in there for a few nights. Burke may be staying there. He wouldn't be the first guy Joplin had ever let hide out there. I'll put this man of mine in place for a week anyway and see what he can find. It's all in your hands. Find Burke without scandal. That's all I ask. Back in my rooms a little while later, I waited for Porky Grout to show up. Hello, how's the trips? Ah, nice. Fatimas. Get your feet down from there. Hey, where do you get that stuff? You want to smack it up? I took a step toward him. He sprang away across the room. Oh, I didn't mean nothing. I was only kidding. Shut up and sit down. I had known this porky grout for nearly three years and had been using him for nearly that long, and I didn't know a single thing that could be said in his favor. He was a coward. He was a liar. He was a thief and a hophead. He was a traitor to his kind and, if not watched, to his employers. His cowardice was, for my purpose, his greatest asset. It was notorious throughout the criminal coast. And though nobody, crook or not, could possibly think him a man to be trusted, nevertheless he was not actually distrusted. So he went freely where he desired and where I sent him and brought me otherwise unobtainable bits of information upon matters in which I was interested. Informant was the polite word that designated him in my reports, the underworld used much less lovely names than the common stool pigeon to denote his kind. So here I am. What'd you want to see me about? Well, it sure wasn't to inquire about your health. I have a job for you. I shot so. Uh-huh. I want you to go down to Half Moon Bay and stick around Tin Star Joplin's joint for a few nights. Here are two photos. The man is Burke Pangburn, the woman Jean Delano. Their names and descriptions are written on the backs. I want to know if either of them shows up down there, what they're doing, and where they're hanging out. It may be that Tin Star is hiding them. I think I know this guy. Here's some money. If you're down there more than a couple of nights, I'll get some more to you. Keep in touch with me, and remember, lay off the stuff. If I come down there and find you all snowed up, I promise that I'll tip Joplin off to you. This is chicken feed. How am I going to get anywhere if I can't spend no money in the joint? There's plenty for a couple of days' expenses. You'll probably knock back half of it. If you stay longer than a couple of days, I'll get more to you. And you get your pay when the job is done, not before. Nuh-uh. I'm tired of packing along with you. You can turn your own jobs. I'm through. If you don't get down to Half Moon Bay tonight, you are through. So it's like that, is it? It's like that. All right. And with that, he took the money and left. This dispute over expense money was simply a preliminary that went with every job I sent him out on. After Porky cleared out, I leaned back in my chair and burned half a dozen Fatimas over the job. The girl had gone first with the 20 grand and then the poet had gone, and both had gone, whether permanently or not, to the white shack. On its face, the job was an obvious affair. The girl had given Pangburn the work to the extent of having him forge a check against his brother-in-law's account. And then, after various moves whose value I couldn't determine at the time, they had gone into hiding together. Yeah? Hello, it's Nina from the agency. Hiya, kid. What's up? 
We just got some information back on an inquiry to all the local taxicab companies. Thought you'd like it sooner rather than later. You thought right as rain. Give it to me. One of the companies came back saying they'd received calls to pick up a party at the Glenton Arms Apartments. Possibly Burke Pangburn's flat. To be taken to a flat on Ashbury Avenue. Likely Jean Delano's. And the same company also reported calls for pickup at the Ashbury flat for drop-off at the Marquis Hotel. And how do those calls bounce against the weather reports we requested? They all came in on rainy nights. Well, all right. Thanks for the call. Sure. See ya. Well, this was something. It might not have any bearing upon the job, but it might. I wondered now if I could find a connection between the Marquis and the White Shack. That would make a completed chain of some sort. I searched the telephone directory and found the Roadhouse's number. Then I went up to the Marquis Hotel. been listening to The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part 1, Episode 5 of Season 2 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the Tech. Dana Gonsalves as Burke Pangburn. Rhiannon McAfee as Gene Delano. Jason D. Johnson as R.F. Axford. Jerry Elliff as Mrs. Clute. Angela Young as the Transfer Company Clerk and the Detective Agency Clerk. Frank Guglielmelli as the Elevator Boy and the Bank Teller. Ian Fettergreen as Mr. Fall. John Bell as Porky Grout, and Joe Stofko as The Old Man, with additional voices by Daniel French. The theme and some incidental music was composed and performed by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. The Girl with the Silver Eyes was written by Dashiell Hammett and was published in the June 1924 issue of Black Mask Magazine. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonia Sound Design. This program was adapted by and produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Please join us next time when the Federated Tech says... A high-speed car chase and a gun battle leads me to a shocking discovery and the solution to a handful of unsolved murders. Be with us for our next episode, part two of The Girl with the Silver Eyes, coming soon from 63 Audio. Yeah, 63 audio.